Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Fellow time travellers, how the devil are you? As always, I'm delighted to have you with me, because otherwise I'd be talking to myself. So thank you for being there. Before we get started, big thank you to all those who keep the wheels on the wagon by being part of my patreon.com site. It's the finances accruing there that make the podcast series possible. So if you're already doing it, thank you. If you're not and you'd like to, go to patreon.com. Follow the Yellow Brick Road, part with a bit of cash. Uh, you can join for a month or you can join for a year and it's cheaper if you pay for the year all at once. I'll leave that up to you. But that's enough of the advert, really. All I can tell you is that if you join Patreon and the rest, you get behind the velvet rope. You become part of the family. Talk to one another. We all share information. We have Q's and A's, question and answers. We do competitions, vodcasts, podcasts, you name it. So come along, join up and uh, and see how you like it. That's it. Now it's time to strap ourselves into the time machine once more as we set off for the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. With new taxes, war and ruthless employers sucking the life out of the working poor, England becomes a tinderbox of hurt and rage. A rebel preacher speaks out championing freedom and equality. Thousands march on London. Watt Tyler, the legend, is at their head. Violence flares, buildings are burnt to the ground, records are destroyed and officials are murdered. Anxious to restore order, the king, the boy king, agrees peace talks with the rebels. But fighting erupts and the king's men cut down and kill Watt Tyler. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. Last week in our journey through history, we found ourselves in the besieged city of Kaffa in 1346 as diseased, rotting corpses were fired over the city walls in one of the world's first uses of chemical warfare. Where are we this week? Hi Paul, well we're still in Europe and we're still reeling from the devastation of the Black Death one way and another Uh, that plague that was unleashed in Kaffa in 1346 as you mentioned but it's now around 30 years later and we're heading to Blackheath on the outskirts of London in the United Kingdom with thousands of angry but hopeful people 
brave and determined folk who are prepared to stand up on their hind legs and demand freedom, fair pay and equality. It's the Peasants' Revolt. It feels incredibly timely and apposite at the moment, right now, what happened then. Because it was basically all about people, the general population, coming right to the end of their tether with all the nonsense that they were getting from on high and you know, and they just said enough's enough and they got stuck in for a while. <laughs> and it feels like we're about to have a peasants' revolt any day now. So how did it all come about? Well, that's a that's such a big question. Um it was the right time, I suppose. There was enough dry tinder that had been building up as though in a old growth forest and finally it just combusted. I think it had to happen and so it did. At that point, what historians later came to call the Hundred Years' War was well underway by 1381. And that was a contributory factor because wars are expensive and forever wars are are a constant enervating toll on everyone because the people that want to wage the war, like the king in this instance, or the high-ups around them, they're constantly draining resources to keep prosecuting the war. I mean, how familiar does that sound? And and it meant that in England, people had been being taxed and they'd been suffering the consequences of war for decades at that point. And it still had had decades to go. The Hundred Years' War, so-called, lasted for 116 years. Uh, it, It was generational. It just went on and on and on and on. Interrupted by periods of peace, it was like it was like climate, you know, it was like hot and cold, hot and cold, on and on and on. What's the headlines? Who was fighting and why? Oh, the Hundred Years' War. Goodness me, Paul, that's that, that, that's, that's the stuff of a whole other uh, a whole other love letter, I suppose. It, it, basically, it was a dynastic struggle ever since, let's say, William the Conqueror came to England in 1066, and obviously he held lands in Normandy, which meant that he was. Uh, he was a vassal, so-called, of the French king. So when, when he came to England and became the king in England, he was still connected across the channel to everything that he governed in France. You know, like a Venn diagram, two circles now overlapped. And there was a, there was a bit of it that was England, and there was a bit, a bit of it that was France, but there was a bit in between. It was an overlapping bit. And then... Kings die, they're replaced by a prince or whatever. And as the generations went on, you had two sort of competing big families, two sort of mafioso-type families. You had an English dynasty and a French dynasty. And every now and again, one or other would think they had the upper hand, you know, because somebody would die without an obvious heir or or whatever. And maybe the the English king at the time would think, right, I'm going to just become king of everything and and would go into war in France. And so you said your, your original question there was why did the peasants' revolt kick off when it did in 1381? Well, because of the ongoing costs of everything, the king, there's a boy king on the throne, it's Richard II, he's 14 years old, obviously he's listening to older, uh, hoarier voices than his own, but the, there's a, a poll tax has been introduced for the, for the first time. Now, people of a certain age will remember Margaret Thatcher's infamous poll tax, and what made the poll tax particularly irksome for the poor in 1381. It was the same reason that it was so irksome for the poor in in Thatcher's Britain. It was a flat tax. Everyone had to pay the same sum. And it, it started out being a few pennies. 
Latterly, it was a shilling, which for a rich person was chump change, the loose change in their dressing gown pocket sort of thing. But for a poor person, it might be everything. It might be the difference between life and death, eating and not eating, homelessness and, and having a home. And so it was hated. As soon as it was introduced, there was opposition to it. And so that, if, if you like, there were all sorts of contributory factors. Another contributory factor for the Peasants' Revolt, obviously, was we just talked about the Black Death that swept into Europe in the 1340s, 1350s and took a catastrophic toll, wiped out, let's say, half the population, maybe more. And it, it had the same, a similar impact in, in England, in Britain, everywhere. And for a period, because the, the working people, the poor, so many were gone, well, so many of everyone was gone, that um, landowners and those that wanted people to come and work their land, they had a problem because there were far fewer people and the far fewer people who were available to work were briefly able to command better pay. Because they weren't ten a penny anymore. There were fewer of them, so they had a bit more clout. So for a brief period, landowners and employers either did or, or, or at least promised that they were going to offer better pay. But as the elite always do, they didn't want to abide by that for very long. And so in the aftermath of the Black Death... All of that impact psychologically and practically and materially that you can imagine. But then it was also exacerbated by the fact that the, those who had survived it had thought that maybe life would get better now for those that had survived. And it, it, for a short, bright period it did. And then the elites just regained control. So again, by 1381, that ill feeling coming off the back of the Black Death, it was only 30 years on from that, that catastrophic outbreak of the Black Death. So th there were all sorts of simmering reasons why the poor were furious with the rich, all of the rich. The thought of the Peasants' Revolt always f lights a fire for me because it's, it's a memory all those years ago of just another period in time when the poor finally said, enough. It's always inspirational, that kind of getting up on hind legs of people who have been down on all fours. Any moment when, when, when the mass of a population just stands up and says, do you know what? You can go and take a flying, a rolling donut. It's always, it's always enlivening that. And it, it means that the, it was brief. It was a, the, the Peasants' Revolt was, was a flash in the pan. It was all over and done with across a few weeks in time. For all that, it's full of moments, full of unforgettable moments that maybe did happen, maybe didn't. Some of them almost certainly didn't. There's a, there's a great story about in, in Cambridge, you know, obviously home of one of the old universities. As happened in many places, the poor decided that they were going to destroy all the records, all the paperwork that said who owned what and who owed how much, all of the written de declarations of ownership and making serfdom and, and all of the rest of it possible. Any buildings in towns and cities where that was in an archive, they were attacked. The poor, the mob, would break in and get all this paperwork and take it outside and burn it so that they were doing away with the, with the record of who everybody was and who they belonged to, which, which again has amazing resonances now for uh, the, this whole digital serfdom that a lot of us are worried about coming based on all of our data being harvested all the time online. And, and traded and stored and it, it makes money 
it makes money for other people, not us. You know, as, a, as George Carlin said, it's all a big private club and you're not a member. And and people talk about, you know, the cloud and how we could bring that down and the server farms that are out all over the world, these enormous warehouses full of servers that are harvesting and storing all of this data. And, and people talk about if they could bring all that down, then the, there'd be, well, there'd be chaos, but there would also be a, talk about a reset, if all of that harvested data was suddenly... Gone. So this was happening so in Cambridge, for example. The mob, uh, which is a pejorative that they don't really deserve, the poor people had had got in amongst the archive, piled it all up, and set it on fire. And there's, a, there's this image of an old woman called Marjorie Starr, who was seen dancing, dancing, you know, around the flames. You know, she was dancing around the bonfire, all wild and wild-eyed, and she was saying, "Away with all the learning of Clarks! Away with it!" You know, so just let's put it all up in smoke. And that's a dazzling image, that idea of this elderly lady, a poor woman who'd lived all of her life in some or other sort of servitude, just briefly, just momentarily celebrating the, the flames and the reset and, the, and all of the proof of serfdom going up in smoke. But as I say, it's probably, it's probably unforgettable because it chimes with today. As I say, people are very aware of, of how much information is held against them. All their debts, you know, all the things they owe. It's a fantasy to think. Imagine if you could just wipe the slate clean. Well, that's what they tried. That's part of what they tried to do in, in, in 1381. It was just a chance to throw off the shackles. You know, the shackles of poverty, the shackles of serfdom. And to stand proud and to, and to be the equal of the elite because... Uh, the undercurrent of all of it, as always is, is that we are all just human beings. There are poor people and there are rich people and there's every everyone else in between. But in the eyes of God, if you like, or under the watchful gaze of the of the universe, whatever you think, we are all just human beings. And who gets to say who has and who has not? A lot of what happened in terms of, if you wanted to point to the moment, to the moment that really mattered, I suppose you would, you would tie it to, first of all, to the activities of a radical priest at the time. He was called John Ball. He had been, now we're talking about 1381, now as long ago as 1366, he had been excommunicated. He had been cast out of the church because he kept on delivering sermons about a classless society. Imagine, you know, talk about a radical. You know, so he was saying, that there shouldn't be haves and have-nots. This is antithetical to, to God's will. Uh, and but what did they do? They excommunicated him. He was silenced, you might say. He was censored and silenced and cast out. See, same stuff just happens again and again and again. And he had been, for years, he was in and out of jail. He wasn't employed by the church anymore, you would say. He just kept on turning up at, in public places and, and speechifying and sermonising about class and about the rights of the poor. And in terms of a moment, he appeared at Blackheath in London in front of a crowd of thousands on the 7th of June, 1381. And he had been, as I say, I mean, he'd been been in and out of jail since 1376, I think. And he was in jail in June, 1381. He was in jail in Maidstone, uh, in Kent, and a, a bunch of Kentish men bust him out <laughs> to come to Blackheath to, uh, so that the people could hear him speak. So it's a revolt that's happening all over the country. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you hear about flashpoints here and there, but there was general unrest. 
It was all, all over the all over the place. There were pockets of rebellion all over. But you know, we're, we're focusing on on just a, a few incidents that are particularly notorious. So, on June the seventh, thirteen eighty one, radical excommunicated priest John Ball uh, was busted out of jail, Maidstone Prison, by allies, by men of Kent. They take him to Blackheath to address a crowd. And it, there's various allegations about what was and wasn't said. The, the, it's a par- apparently some will tell you that he called for the wholesale slaughter of of the gentry. They'll tell you that he said, you know, if you can get your hands on a, a lord and a lady, do for them. He may or may not have said that. What he does seem to have done, though, was to deliver yet another sermon where he questioned why there were poor people and why there were rich people. And he said famously, when Adam delved and Eve span. Who was then the gentleman? Right? When Adam delved, you know, dug and ploughed, and Eve span, you know, made clothes, who was then the gentleman? And in the context at that, at that time, in, in 14th century England, the poor were not educated. Of course they weren't. And in our eyes, they would be uneducated people. However, they did know the scripture. They would have gone to church and they would have been told by the priests the contents of the Bible. And so they knew about the Garden of Eden and they knew about Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. And John Ball's message was that God did not create haves and have-nots. He simply created a man and a woman and therefore men and women. And that it was never God's plan that there would be those who had and those who had not. That was his contention, that inequality was not God's plan. Now, take from that what you will, but it's a strong and potent argument. And in that context, when so many of the poor were just at the end of the rope, he was singing a song that, that chimed with them. And so, all in all, John Ball is a struck match in a tinderbox. He's all it takes to, to fire something up. And what starts there at Blackheath under his influence it catches and in the after, in the aftermath thousands and thousands of poor people march on London and uncountable numbers who knows how many and there are those historians who will tell you that where, where the poor had rebelled before what made the peasants revolt of 1381 a bit different was that the kind of middling classes revolted to a bit like's happening now, <laughs> you know, that people uh, of, the, of the emergent middle classes, people who have relatively recently, maybe one generation out from their own backgrounds, own a house, own a couple of cars, own a business. You people that have just got themselves established in the middle class are now having that taken away from them after all of that effort. And so you're invited to think, I suppose, of kind of medieval guardian readers <laughs> who, are, who are also incensed about inequity and, and inequality for maybe the first time in their lives. And so that as well as the poor marching on London, it's also that emergent middle class or some of them who feel suitably challenged that they want to get in on it as well. Everything always tends to have a focal point. And although there's John Ball, who's the trigger, the spark, the rebellion itself, the Peasants' Revolt, seemed to coalesce around Watt Tyler. There's a name. That's one of those names, again, that people have heard but might not always be able to establish the context. Well, he became the leader and the spokesman of the popular peasants' revolt. It's interesting what Tyler's initials are WT, 
and he's held up as someone who rebels against the powers that be. And for the same reasons, in another part of the world, William Tell, WT, you know, the character that shoots the bow and arrow, shoots the apple off his son's head and all of that. William Tell was also a, a member of the sort of lower orders, lower middle classes, who rebelled and led something. What Tyler, William Tell, there's just a, there's a resonance there between them. So off they go, the rebellion's underway. It's happening in London, it's happening elsewhere, because word spreads. It goes viral, you would say, and people were killed. Officers of state were butchered, and buildings were burned, and records of servitude were destroyed, and that was happening all over. Things were done, and, and, and much of it was ugly. But again, I say it's, it's why it resonates so strongly now, because look at with France. France is on fire at the moment. The people are rebelling. They're supposedly rebelling because we Emmanuel Macron has suggested the pensionable age should go up in six years' time from 62 to 64, but I would contend that it's actually about a lot more than that, and the talk about the pension is just another of the last straws. Uh, but, but all over the world, look at uh, in the Netherlands, where the farmers are under so much pressure, and the people have risen up. You know, there was an election just a week or so ago, ten days ago, where out of nowhere... A new political party was born out of a out of a clear blue sky, and it, it, it appeared in a, a manifesto of saying that they would defend the farmers and go head to head with the toe to toe with the with the government about taking away the farmland and 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 slaughtering the the national herd. It's appeared out of nowhere, so there's rebellion all over, and the mainstream media are not covering it at the moment because they've been bought and paid for, and they are just mouthpieces of the of the establishment at the moment. So you're not hearing about it. But the fact is, whether, you, whether you're seeing it or hearing it or not, the world is on fire. There are people rising in the Americas, north and south, all over Europe, out, out in the Middle East, in Israel, wherever. It, it is happening. Uh, and that's what gives a memory of the Peasant Revolt of 1381 a particular resonance. So the, the powers that be get a fright. They get a proper scare. And when the thousands turn up in London, further into London than Blackheath, let's say, King Richard II, who's 14 years old, he turns up. He comes to Mile End, in fact, with his retinue. And there they, they meet the, the rebels and he makes promises because they're under pressure. They're, they're under severe pressure. And the promises are made about free trade and, and ending serfdom and ending forced labour and all of that. But the fact is, as you could predict, the, the king and the people around the king had no intentions of keeping the promises. They were just trying to uh, pour oil on troubled waters or, or douse the flames of, of imminent incipient rebellion but the trouble keeps going on the Tower of London no lesser centre of authority than the Tower of London surrenders to the rebels right imagine England's Chancellor and other figureheads of the poll tax people that are associated by the general populace with, with the imposition of the poll tax they are separated from their heads as well so blood is spilled there's serious potential trouble there's a second meeting with the king. It all happens across June 1381. He meets again the following day at Smithfield. And this time fighting breaks out. And the fighting spreads. And Watt Tyler is cut down and killed by the king's men. And for good or ill, the rebellion is over at that point in London. But it has to be said that the trouble continued elsewhere. The fires kept on burning for a while. However, bright and significant, unforgettable, memorable though it had been, it was all over. And it had all happened within a month, all over England. Wherever it started and however it was all burned out, 
within a month. But the poll tax was gone. Okay? And the poll tax stayed gone until Margaret Thatcher. No one had the nerve to try and bring in such an iniquitous tax again until Margaret Thatcher. And Margaret Thatcher's poll tax didn't last either. But I suppose you would say, and there's a there's an inevitability about it, the Peasants' Revolt was supposed to establish a utopia. And to this day, people who champion ideologies like Marxism and socialism and, and a dozen other isms besides will look back to the Peasants' Revolt and say, ah, it, it all started then and it could all have been so different. But the utopia that was supposed to be the outcome of the Peasants' Revolt in 1381, it disappeared like the mirage it was. There was no utopia then, there's been no utopia since, and ultimately it's because utopia is what it says on the tin. Utopia means nowhere. It means the place that doesn't exist. And sadly, them's the facts. The peasants' revolt burned down, and at the end of the day the circumstances of the poor had not been improved. Developing pieces of movable type, a man with a brilliant brain met a merchant with money and together they set in motion a revolution that would transform the world. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast series, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. The music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. The post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Cat the Pink Podcasts production. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.